Welcome to the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast, where every two weeks we explore all the aspects of the weight loss surgery journey. We'll hear from a range of experts, including bariatric surgeons, psychologists, patients, and dietitians, sharing up-to-date, informative advice to help fast-track your long-term weight loss success. and welcome back to the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast. I'm Jackie Lewis, Clinical Nutrition for BN Multi. And today I'm pretty excited. I have Associate Professor Michael Talbot with me from Sydney. Good morning, Michael. Hi, good morning. Thank you for sharing Sunday morning with me. <laughs> You're a hard man to pin down. <laughs> Sometimes. So I'll introduce you briefly. You're a Sydney-based upper GI uh, gastrointestinal surgeon. Your specialty is complex cases, would you agree? Yeah, I've sort of developed a bit of a niche in this area, I suppose. And what does qualify as a complex case? What sort of things? Look, everything, everybody is different. So every person is <coughs> complex. But what I've picked up in the last 15 or 20 years is an interest in managing people who are a little bit atypical, um, people who have had complications from surgery or have complex obesity-related diseases or have had previous weight loss surgery or other surgeries and are are looking for continued treatments. So revision surgery has always been a big part of my practice. Right, and that's one of my questions today. So we'll explore that in a little while. And what led you to this niche area? What what gets you up in the morning? Look, when... When I first started, nobody was really doing any of this type of surgery in New South Wales. So this was the days before sleeves and bypasses were being done in Australia. So what attracted me to it was the disconnect between what people were saying about um, patients who lived with obesity problems in Australia and what I was seeing with my colleagues treating patients with severe obesity overseas. So there are all of these treatments that were available in the US and Europe, which were not being offered to patients here. So I saw the value that was being offered to these patients and the fact that their lives were improving and their diseases were being resolved. I mean, the first time you see somebody with diabetes who wakes up after an operation without diabetes, it's a pretty transformative event for the patient, but it had a really big impact on me. I thought, oh, you know, we'd view diabetes as a progressive and irreversible condition. Mm -hmm. And here was something that we could offer patients and it would work. So the The other thing about it is the surgery was very complex and very interesting, and I liked complex, interesting things. So at the very beginning, uh, back in the early 2000s, just being able to do safely a laparoscopic gastric bypass or a laparoscopic sleeve was complex and interesting. Getting those skills was was very difficult um, and very enjoyable and very, very rewarding. And as time's gone on, as more and more people are doing these types of surgeries, um, the number of people who still need treatment is still growing. Um, So I suspect I've got a job for life. (laughs) I would say so. Plenty of interesting people out there to treat. It is quite remarkable, the diabetes. You know, you do see straight after some surgeries that people 
their diabetes does go into remission. What's yeah. the mechanism there? Have you found that? Um, it's a lot. It seems some of it's just related to caloric restriction, but it can't just be that because uh, when you put patients on our pre-surgery very low energy diet, they're usually having five to 800 calories a day of high protein, low carbohydrate food. And I've got a patient in hospital at the moment who's on a continuous glucose monitor and you could see that even on a five or 600 calorie a day diet, her sugars were high enough that she's still needing 60 units of insulin a day. Right. And then immediately after surgery and subsequent to it, she's back on a on a 500 calorie a day diet, but her sugars are down at six and she's not requiring insulin. And the thought is it's related to changes in gut hormones, mm. particularly in cretins that either drive insulin resistance or reduce insulin resistance. So the, the front end of your small bowel produces a hormone that promotes insulin resistance. It's called GIP. Mm -hmm. um, and the back end of your small bowel, after about 150 centimetres, produces the hormone that promotes a reduction in insulin resistance called GLP. So when you do sleeves and bypasses, you change gastric emptying and you're presenting food to the mid part of the small bowel, which then produces all of these hormones. So GLP is an interesting one because the drug companies have got onto it and now they're providing medical therapy which mimics some aspects of surgical therapy um, with Saxenda and Ozempic which are two quite useful medical therapies which help not just diabetes but also weight loss. Um, so the interesting thing is that surgery has informed pharmaceutical companies to look for the triggers that are activated by surgery to increase the range of therapeutic options for, for patients living with obesity. Amazing and are they effective? At the moment, are they early stages or have they been around for a while? I've been around for a couple of years. These medications are quite effective, but they have a ceiling of their impact. Correct. So if you if you put somebody on one of these new drugs, you'll expect um, a reasonable number of people to lose 5 to 10% of their total body weight. And a small number, like something like between 1 in 8 and 1 in 12 people, will lose up to 20% of their total body weight, mm -hmm. uh, which is a pretty impressive amount. The problem is when you withdraw the treatment, the condition comes back. Um, and the main barrier to these medications is the their long-term costs. In Australia, the PBS won't fund or even part fund obesity therapies. They'll fund the therapies to treat conditions associated with obesity, such as hypertension and diabetes mm. and high cholesterol, but they won't actually fund the the treatment for the core the condition core. itself. It's, it's, it's which like is a, you know, an interesting thing. It's the uh, preventative side of things is often the last to get taken care of. So. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And so looking at the reasons for the different types of surgery, I do see yep. in our groups quite often patients are, you know, looking at embarking on the weight loss surgery journey and they come into our groups and discuss the type of surgery they would like. Yep. Is it as simple as this patient choosing the surgery they would like to have? Or is it really something that needs to be explored? Are there reasons for the application of the different types of surgeries? Yeah, there are. Um, the reasons why people 
choose an operation they feel comfortable with are often very valid. And it's usually driven by the fact that they have shared a narrative with somebody who's had that procedure and had an outcome that's favourable. Yeah, correct. So if you're listening to a story of somebody whose overall life resonates with you and they tell you what they've done and what the results were, then you sort of think, well, I'm like this person. I was like the this person was like me, they've undertaken this and they're doing well, I think I'd like to explore this myself. And so those, those stories that patients exchange with each other are actually very valuable in informing them about the lived experience. So as a, as a surgeon, I can talk about risks, I can talk about side effects, I can talk about measurable outcomes, but I can't be relied on as effectively to detail the lived experience of the procedure to the patient because background and their opinions always going to be different from the, the last patient I saw and the next patient I'm going to see. So I actually think it's really handy for people to have these discussions. Now, it, it can be unfortunate if it becomes a very blinkered approach and they make all of their decisions and they come in, I'm going to have this operation, and I'm going to have it next week and this is what's going to happen afterwards because there's always a bit of devil in the detail and some of the some people have medical conditions that may not make them suitable for some surgeries. And also, some people can have personal goals that they want to achieve that won't be achieved by that particular procedure that they've chosen. Right. And, and that's why there will always be a role for different procedures and there will always be a role for comparing and contrasting some of the outcomes so that people can make a, a, a better choice. A lot of people actually, when they come in saying that this is what they'd like, they're usually able to articulate why they'd like it and usually those reasons are pretty valid. And then our job is to reflect upon their statements, challenge them a little bit um, and then talk about what other treatments might do and how they're different. Um, and sometimes that'll lead the person to stick with their original choice because it, it'll validate their decision and make them feel more comfortable. And, and sometimes it'll challenge them with their decision and make them think about doing something different. Excellent. And so I guess there's research going on all the time into the long-term effects of these, I'm, I guess we're really referring to the sleeve and the bypass. Yeah. With the phasing out so much of the gastric banding. And I guess as time goes on, there's always developments and positive and negative, I suppose. Yeah. And I guess you can relay that to your patient from a factual standpoint, but yeah. the emotional investment is still quite relevant, isn't it? It is. It's very interesting. Thank you. And so, why do what would you? What are the reasons that you generally do apply gastric sleeve over bypass or the other way around? Are there different criteria that generally push you in one direction or the other? The the sleeve um, is the best current starting point for a conversation about weight loss surgery because it has the lowest side effect profile mm. and that's really the thing that that drives its acceptability and the fact that it's preferred by so many patients it's it, it works quickly it works effectively and only a relatively small number of people suffer side effects that affect their quality of life but it does have its limitations it in people who are heavier people whose 
body mass index starts heading towards 50 and above 50. If if the ind- if an individual has a BMI of 50 and their desire is to achieve a BMI of 25, a sleeve is unlikely to achieve that goal. Now, the sleeve would be sufficient to make them healthy and functional, but if that person's goal is determined by a weight, then a sleeve may not get there because a sleeve generally will help people achieve about a 25 to 30% total body weight loss. Right. That's a good now, number to have in the bank, isn't it? Yeah. So, but and most of the the median type of patients that we treat, you know, their their weight may be 105 to 130 kilograms. If they lose 25 to 30 percent of their total body weight, they will achieve a weight that makes them normal. They mm-hmm. can, you know, for a man, they'll be wearing a size. 34 pair of pants for a woman they'll be size 12 size 14 and that's fine and and healthy functional Mm. and that'll do the job so the sleeve can be very easily applied to a wide range of people but once you start getting towards the extreme so heavier people people with worse diabetes so Mm. if you've had diabetes for several years or you've started to take insulin the prospect of successful remission of severe morbid obesity or more severe diabetes is less likely Um, and then there would be a bypass would be the better solution in that in a conversation about a bypass becomes relevant that doesn't mean you tell the person that they must have a a bypass but you say well if you've got bad diabetes if we do a sleeve, you may or may not go into remission. In five years' time, you won't be in remission. You'll be back on tablets, but you probably, you'll be a lot better than you are now. Mm. Whereas some people really resent having to take their blood sugars and they find that really difficult. And for those patients, a bypass might be better because they're an individual who's expressed a dislike of diabetes management. Therefore, you give them often the therapy that may means they've got less requirement for diabetes management. Interesting. So the, do you feel the bypass, or does the research show, the bypass has a more metabolic impact on the patient's health as well? It, or? it, it does, but it's, it's positive and negative mm. because everything comes with a price. <laughs> and so the bypass has pulls more levers and some of those levers um, – are better at reducing your cholesterol, reducing your diabetes, reducing your reflux, but they also increase your chance of mineral deficiencies, mm. increase your chance of B12 deficiency, increase your chance of ulcer disease. Correct. And, and potentially also increase your risk of addiction to alcohol. Is that correct? Yeah. And is that what you call transference of addiction? Is that what we hear? Well, some of it's related to transference of addiction, um, but also it's related to um, enhanced absorption. Right. Um, and, and, I mean, transfer of addiction is actually um, a really interesting one. We, we think it's just a behavioral thing, but it's, it's, a, it's a neuropsychological thing mm-hmm. that um, if you lose joy of eating but maintain joy of alcohol consumption, then if you're using substances to get you through the day and help you cope, then it's pretty easy to to switch from one to another. If Tim Tams no longer work, but a glass of Chardonnay does, you might take the Chardonnay. And it's often it'll fit 
a little bit better after a bypass too, won't it? Yeah. <laughs> and as far as malabsorption goes, when you're talking bypass compared to sleeve, we see from our perspective a little bit more of the fat-soluble vitamin deficiency, overall more malabsorption due to bypass. Is that correct? It depends on the type of bypass. So with the, with the standard bypass that I was originally trained in, we're only bypassing 40, 50 centimetres of the total small bowel length. But um, probably now the most frequently performed gastric bypass in Australia would be the many or single anastomosis gastric bypass. And with that, a, a major component of the operation is bypassing 150 to 200 centimetres of small bowel. So the people who have those really do have a predictable risk of uh, they'll get increased mineral deficiencies compared with the standard short limb bypass, but they'll also run the risk of complex mineral deficiencies such as selenium or, or zinc deficiency, which are pretty much unheard of in mm -hmm. sleeves and short limb bypasses, but also, um, as you pointed out, fat-soluble vitamin deficiencies such as vitamin A, vitamin E. Not all patients will, but you won't actually know who's suffering these deficiencies unless you um, test them. Correct. Or until you can't drive at night because you've got until vitamin A deficiency. Yeah. <laughs> I so, have so heard that. that. Yeah, so that's unheard of with a short limb gastric bypass, mm. but it, it's it's going to become more prevalent um, with the the newer types of bypasses that are taking off. And so we've got to be really careful when we move from one type of operation to an improved and better operation that we've got to realise that the change will bring some unanticipated risks. And nothing's for free, is it? Nothing's for free. <laughs> And so I guess we see some patients who have ongoing reflux prior to surgery. Yep. Um, I have my own understanding of the dysregulation of the microbiome and yep. overeating of processed foods as well as just essentially the digestive health overall. Once you've performed the surgery and you have a patient with ongoing reflux, what are the risks involved in that? So reflux is a multifactorial condition and it's driven by um, a couple of things. So there's things that are very difficult to measure, which are um, your gut microbiome and the quality of your diet. These are very important things, but they're very hard to measure objectively. There's also individual sensitivity. So um, some people are very sensitive to reflux and they get a lot of symptoms um, if they get any reflux at all. Other people get almost no symptoms from quite severe reflux. And in fact, for an individual, it's reflux sensitivity, which is one of the biggest drivers of their chance of having reflux problems. But you can't measure that. The things that we can measure um, that are very important for reflux are esophageal function, mm -hmm. your ability of your esophagus to push acid out if acid comes up, the function of the lower esophageal valve, which is supposed to stay closed all the time, whether or not you've got a hiatus hernia and the pressure inside your stomach. Mm. And uh, is that through volume of food present or um, abdominal adiposity creating that internal pressure? A combination of events. So when you're very overweight, you've got increased intra-abdominal pressure. So simply getting people to lose weight will improve one of the drivers. Mm. Um, 
Intric eating a meal will increase your intragastric pressure, which will drive reflux events. But also, a lot of the things that we eat trigger a neurological response to open the lower esophageal sphincter. So if people have chili, tomato, wine, coffee, anything that's even remotely fun, <laughs> those foods um, uh, lead to a, a, an opening of the lower esophageal valve, which yeah. promotes reflux. Also, patients who have sleeve gastrectomy, the lower esophageal, the, the intragastric pressure or the pressure inside the stomach, because the stomach is now so tight, mm. raises quite significantly. So if the pressure in your stomach is greater than the pressure in your esophagus, then acid and food will get squirted up your esophagus. And this happens to some patients after sleeves. Right. And is then, if it's, what are the markers for then a revision if you're looking at um, a abating the reflux is it a bypass down the track or is there another way of managing that yeah, so if somebody's got um, reflux after bariatric surgery you aim to give them the simplest treatment you can so the simplest treatment is just, just to take an anti-acid tablet like Lysac or Nexium um, and if that does the job you stop there mm. um, because everything has a price. If people still have significant symptoms after um, surgery and the antiacid tablets don't work, then it's worthwhile actually trying to explore the reasons why that individual has reflux. And that can be looking at their weight loss, looking at their diet, and then looking at surgically correctable things, so the configuration of their stomach, whether they've got a hiatus and what their esophageal function's like. And then you can craft a therapy uh, for them. Uh, in reality, the majority of patients who have reflux after a sleeve, you can get them a lot better just by fixing a hiatus hernia. Right. So um, we're going to be publishing soon a relatively large series of 60 or 70 patients treated for reflux after sleeve gastrectomy um, and we've found that doing a hiatus hernia uh, repair alone is relatively simple, similar to doing a gastric bypass. So why do a big operation right. if you can do a small operation? That's a great finding, isn't it, to avoid that extra, you know, the risk of a more um, intensive surgery and another recovery. Yeah, so. you know, why, why, why treat people with something if, if you can, you know, avoid raising the complexity. Mm, correct. Yeah, thank you. And so we're starting to talk a bit more about revision surgery. Yep. What, what is that? What brings a need for revision generally in patients that you see? About half the time, revisions are driven by development of complications down the track mm -hmm. and the other half the time it's driven by desire to uh, achieve weight loss um, and and sometimes it's a bit of both you get some people who've got that reflux but they want to lose another 10 kilograms um, so if somebody's um, just presenting with a side effect then I'd always want to do a non-escalatory procedure. Right. So, so if somebody's achieved a satisfactory weight with a simple procedure, I don't want to change them to another weight loss operation mm. because you're creating the opportunity to 
get a whole lot of extra side effects that the patient doesn't need. Um, and I think it's reasonable just to try to craft a simple solution for them. If somebody's got weight regain, then you've got to find out what's what's going on with that. So some people haven't responded to the first operation, so they their weight loss journey was not similar to other people's, so they've lost less weight. So if you've somebody's had a sleeve and they've lost 15% of their total body weight after the sleeve, then you'd be wanting to know what the factors were that led to that. But also if somebody's lost 30% of their weight with a sleeve and then gone and regained 10 or 15% back, you also want to find out what's causing it because you want your next therapy to be the solution for their problem. Yes. So if you offer somebody who's snacking and grazing another procedure that limits hunger and capacity, you're going to get nowhere mm. because people don't snack and graze because they're hungry. They snack and graze because they like snacking and grazing. Correct, um, which is where we talk about portion management from the word go. In yeah. that first period where there's not that much hunger, that's the time to set up those habits before habits. that hunger does sort of come back and surprise you um, and you've got your armory there to manage it I guess. And, and what you'll often see is that these uh, uh, patients who have regained a lot of weight after a successful operation they've actually skipped that step that they've been so successful with their initial effects of surgery that they they haven't gone back for the follow-up and the counselling. It's <coughs> weight regain mm. is almost unheard of in people who are in regular follow-up. Um, right. It's uh, like, do you believe that's a lifelong process, that checking in and monitoring and yes. tweaking? Yeah. I really it's a chronic, can't it's a chronic emphasize disease. that enough. Yeah. And multifaceted, like there's so many different things that lead a person to become morbidly obese. And I think we're only dealing with one or two of those factors um, and just randomly checking in when the wheels are falling off. Um, it's really important that it's a more preventive approach and a, um, that there's a team involved, that there's, you know, professional consultation around all sorts of different things that are going on um, and close monitoring. Yeah. And do you see Absolutely. that um, when someone's losing quite slowly with a sleeve, is it metabolic generally or is it more to do with their um, habits overall? Look, early on, um, if they're losing slowly, it's a mix. Sometimes it appears to be metabolic. Sometimes there are some resistant um, lifestyle factors that people haven't declared to themselves. So they, they struggle to declare it for you. Um, and if that happens, um, the most effective way of sorting that one out uh, is to try to get the patient to come in with their peer support group, either a partner or a sibling, and then have a conversation about what's going on together. Because if the partner or the sibling notices behaviours in the patient that they're not declaring, then you can have that conversation. But if the if the support team is saying, look, they're doing a pretty good job, then I'm more likely to think that this is just an individual who's got metabolic issues. Mm. But it's not the end of the world because we've 
as we're talking before about all of these new medical therapies, we've got all of these things we can throw at people. So if you've got somebody who's a bit slow, we can find a medical therapy which will give you another 5 to 10% total body weight loss over a few months. So you can, you can add a bit of a tailwind to anybody whose weight loss is falling short of their goals. And for a slow loser, what sort of investigations do you do that um, don't include here's another surgery? Um, do you check different function of, say, thyroid health, that sort of thing to begin with? Where do you look for that yes. slow the slow lose? So they've all, they've all had these things checked beforehand. There's no particular hormone test you can do. The, the facets of what drives your metabolic rate inter-individually different mm. and very difficult to measure and a lot of it's genetic. The concrete things you can measure, body composition and resting basal metabolic rate. Mm. And so resting basal, basal metabolic rate, you've got to measure a couple of times in that individual to, to see where it is, but it's a very simple thing to do. So if somebody basal metabolic rate is a certain number, then to drive them to lose weight, you just have to make sure that their energy in, energy out has them achieving a calorie deficit below their basal metabolic rate. And then that gives you something you can talk about um, and craft a program for them. It's a great knowledge to have that understanding of what you what each individual needs on a daily basis yeah. um, which gives you something then quite succinct to work with yeah. it's great i think to see that there are these other stops in between from one surgery to another because i think i hear in our groups patients who are struggling and they're not losing the weight they wanted and their immediate leaning is I think I need more surgery. And I think there's Almost so much never. in between. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a lot to consider before that is brought about and generally due to complexity by the sound of things. Yeah. Thank you. Especially since we've got so many useful tools that make the requirement for further surgery a lot less relevant for that person. If you can achieve the same goal without another operation, then people are pretty happy. That's the idea. Good stuff. And as far as getting ready for surgery, what can a patient do if they're, they are getting prepared, they either sleeve or bypass? What sort of things do you see as far as um, good outcomes for patients that they've put into place before they come and see you? Mental prep time. So making sure there's a bit of a delay between their desire, their desire to have surgery and actually having surgery. So... The faster people go, the more that it seems to me that they're treating the surgery as the solution, whereas the surgery is just part of the process that leads to the solution. Right. Um, and, and getting friends and family and support people on site as well. So if somebody does this and they've got a supportive endocrinologist or GP, husband or wife, sibling, somebody like that, a bit of a chair squad, mm. then that's really important. So the, if the person's taken time to gather some allies to, to bring with them on the journey, um, it means that they're, uh, they're going to be a lot more robust when challenges pop up. And challenges occur in 100% <laughs> of people who have the surgery. I can well imagine. It's, it's, and I think that you're saying the time, it would be that, time to understand and time to prepare but also time to deal with you know what happens afterwards and yeah. that it's a total readjustment and I think yeah. I do see the range of patients in our 
groups and on our, you know, the people I pick up the phone to during the week and they're either well supported, they've done their homework, they've got a team or they're totally lost and I don't think there'd be a feeling like that. You know, you've just undertaken something that's quite life-changing and you're like, now what? I don't feel fantastic. I'm finding all these things out as I go along. And I just think the preparation and the understanding and education um, is just a huge part of it. Um, But um, that's what we try and support as much as we can as well. So kind of enjoying that part of it actually um yeah and as far as recovery goes what do you sort of see are the best um outcomes for patients and preparation for you know quick and amazing robust recovery from bariatric surgery look um people who spend a couple of weeks on the pre-op diet thinking about the post-op diet um are then prepared for the food challenges and, and the transition from liquid to solid diet and they've, the better organised they are and the better resources they have, the easier that transition. People who also sort out family relationships and their work relationships so that they're not having surgery at a time of personal stress. Good point. Um, so if, if, you know, if you, things are difficult at work or, or if you're thinking about moving house or your you know, home environment is complex at the moment, if you've got a sick child, if you've got a sick parent, if you've got a sick partner, no, mm. delay. Um, because you, to do well after surgery, you've got to be selfish for a while. That's you've got to focus on, on your own uh, well-being. And mothers especially are sometimes not very good at this. <laughs> you've sometimes got to say no to others to say yes to yourself. And to be there for others, you know, that's yeah. part of it, isn't it? They talk about putting the oxygen mask on first. And I think this yes. is a real – and I do see it, it's a tendency – sort of a personality type in in these groups is people who always put other people first and for them to finally step up and claim something that they either want or need to do for the better outcomes for everybody overall it is yeah I think there's a lot in that taking charge and um, feeling selfish and I like to call it selfing um, whereas a lot of people do feel it's selfish you know so it's changing the context of taking charge and and taking responsibility but also putting yourself first maybe for the first time ever yeah thank you and um, so we're living in a time where there's an abundance of information available on all subjects and I imagine your patients come into you with a realm of, you know, a ream of information and um, their understanding. Is that a help to you that people are coming in with a better informed background on what they're about to do? Or does it sometimes, um, like you were saying before, are there blinkers that get in the way of that, the, the range of information and maybe the source of their information as well? Overall, it's a positive thing mm. um, because... The more somebody's read, the more likely they would have read a range of things. And then what people have read allows you to then have conversations. Um, And so the more they've read, the broader the range of their reading, the easier it is to, to bring it all back to making it about them. Things are not so good when people have really funneled down on very narrow 
sources of information and entered into the internet echo chambers <laughs> where people repeat the same thing back to each other until it becomes the truth. Um, and then they're, they're fixated on, on particular points of view and they find it hard to shake those points of view. Yes, I think social media has a lot. There's positive and negative, but yep. I do see some groups are a real um, dumping ground for poor outcomes and poor me and sharing stories that are not um, always as successful as were anticipated. Um, and I think as a prospective patient who is looking around for support and information and coming across these long, long posts about, you know, what can go wrong, and it's a, a tiny percentage, but once it's there, it's certainly something that would definitely be echoing in people's minds, I think. But, but knowing thing, that things can sometimes not go well is still a good thing to know because mm -hmm. it is a possibility you know probably two or three percent of people who have bariatric surgery through no fault of their own really have a hard time mm. um, and having knowledge that while that does occur that's uncommon and that but at least knowing that sometimes things are not great we can always do things to help um, but that does help the why me Correct. knowing that it's not just you that this is not something that you've done wrong some sometimes things just Happen. don't work out as well as you'd like mm, and it's true. so those stories are actually not a bad thing because mm. it allows people to understand that it's a big decision but that's exactly right i think that's exactly right is just getting that range of those range of experiences to give it some weight because yeah. i also see and i hear that um you know there's a thinking and a stigma around bariatric surgery that it's the easy way out and i just certainly don't think it's that it's a, it's a huge undertaking and whilst the weight loss is fast like you say, everything comes at a price, but it's just a huge adjustment. And I, I just think that whole stigma of, oh, you took the easy way out, it's just misinformed. Yeah, it's, this is the, the thing about negative portrayals of the people with the lived experience of obesity. If you ask any person who hasn't been severely overweight and hasn't had bariatric surgery, they'll say, well, it's the easy way out. If you ask anybody who's had treatment for severe obesity, they'll say, no, that's not true. Yeah. And in a degree, uh, to some point, it's like saying, well, taking an asthma puffer is the easy way out of treating your asthma. Why don't you just take a deep breath? Suck it up. Oh, exactly. Exactly. What a <laughs> great just, analogy. It's just a treatment. Yeah. Well, basically, the thought is they should eat less and move more, and that would be the cure for everything. But, you know, once you get to that point where you've got endocrine disruption coupled with chronicity, then you've got your comorbidities. It's just not possible. And certainly, I think the statistics on actually losing that weight through diet and exercise and, you know, clean living are about 0.7% yeah. yeah. and retaining it once you've gained that. And once your set point is um, up higher at, uh, and sustained for a period of time, it's just not a possibility. So, gee, I'd love to put a billboard up with that information on it, wouldn't you? Yeah, but, but <laughs> it's interesting that, that when people have bias and stigma, they're not their opinions are not altered by facts. They're eventually altered, though, by positive messages mm. and positive positive messengers. And one of the things that we lack in the obesity space, space is positive messengers who have had 
the lived experience with obesity mm. uh, and creating you know positive narratives so that people understand what's going on um you know there there are support groups for people with breast cancer bowel cancer crohn's disease um there is actually a support network starting up um in australia called the win network um which is the weight issues network which is a support group or advocacy group uh, made up of people with lived experience of uh, uh, obesity and what we need is more positive peer messages mm. and messengers to send those messages out because people will not be influenced by data no and it's a small percentage that they're seeing isn't it i mean yeah. we have some amazing examples of turning life in a 180 degree direction in our group and in our lives on a Tuesday night on Facebook I'll invite them in you know one of the guys was 170 kilograms and now he's just about to ride across Australia and um, it doesn't have to be as extreme a transformation yeah. as that but I, it's just quite amazing what's possible and I think the more that people undertake this journey out of desperation and out of feeling like they're at the end of the line which I think is where you need to get to for them to see that is possible and it could be anybody um, if you've got the right tools and the right support and education available. Yeah, it's quite impressive. It's a really incredible. I think they exercise more than I do, <laughs> which is um, keeps me motivated too. So enough about surgery. We're going to just talk a little bit about you personally. Yep. What are your most pleasurable pastimes, Michael Talbot? Listening to music, reading and cooking. Oh, you cook too. Yep. Very nice. And what do you like to read about? Is it academic um, or is it escapism? Escapism. I've got so <laughs> many facts I have to deal with at work. So I work so many hours a week. Um, you know, I'll, I'll read virtually anything that hasn't got a relationship with <laughs> with work. Or Real world. Makes me think. <laughs> That's a good That's a good way to switch off. And how do you stay balanced when you are working in those extremes I suppose and that's a responsibility I think is what I often glean from discussion with the surgeon. One of the problems with surgery is it's so engaging and immersive that it's quite easy to be not balanced you know because it really is an enjoyable job mm. um, you know we're meeting and interacting with people all the time and yeah, the very large majority of people I deal with during a day, the day, they're bringing their A game, you know, so they're all switched on, yeah. they're all focused and, you know, you get a lot of energy off people who are doing things. And so it is possible to end up, you know, working 60 to 70 hours a week for a decade or more. <laughs> and not quite achieving a balance. So, um, so yeah, balance probably just means saying a little bit um, more no's to work mm -hmm. and a little bit more yeses to other things, like exercise. Yeah. It's a caring profession overall, though, and I think perhaps that's what leads you into these roles where we like to see people benefit from what we have to offer and often we don't know how to turn that tap off of, you know, maybe I can do something here. Yep. Um, and that's the same as someone embarking on the bariatric journey is, you know, sometimes you have to say no for your own good and um, be selfish. <laughs> and so who inspired you the most in your career? 
one of the nice things about medical training is you you move from team to teams from you know one team to another um, and you, you so you get exposed to a large number of highly functioning and often very empathetic mentors um, so I guess a lot of the mentors who inspired me were surgeons um, and you know, the ones that inspired me the most were, you know, they had a mix of technical proficiency, but they had an ability to engage with other people. That was really the, the main thing, that, that sort of balance between their technical stuff and their proficiency with, with patients and with their peers. That was the most inspiring thing for me. That's a hard one to balance when you say you have so many facts and everything is quite factual and precise and it's a big responsibility you have when you're caring for someone in that way. So to maintain the human connection and that understanding of other and the empathy that goes with that, it's a really nice, and when you find that it's such an incredible personality trait, I believe, yeah. it's, um, it stands out and it's um, quite a beautiful thing in my opinion. Good on you. And so talking about books, who's your favourite author? Who's my favourite author? <laughs> Probably Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, you know, uh, did Love in the Time of Cholera and 100 Years of Solitude and books like that. Yeah. So he's a Mexican magic realist author. He was probably has written my favourite books of all time. I'll have to look those books up and add them to your show notes. Again, also there's... Um, We'll add a range of show notes of different references you've made and anything you think um, you might like to add to benefit the patient experience, we can add down there as well. And I'm just grateful that you gave up your time to be with us and talk about your pearls of wisdom as far as bariatric surgery goes. And, yeah, your expertise is well known in our industry. So it's... um. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. And have a wonderful Sunday. <laughs> you too. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Michael. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening. And just before you go, we would love to hear your feedback. So please give us a rating and review. For other interesting topics of conversation and inspiration, come and drop into our Facebook community at BN Bariatric. If you've enjoyed our podcast, we hope you will share on your Facebook or Instagram and hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode.